Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Why does St. Paul specify that he was away from Jerusalem for an interval of 14 years? Does the length of time have any significance? Why did he insist on meeting privately with Peter and James during his visit? Why are Peter, James, and John referred to as the pillars? Why is the death of Jesus considered a victory, and how do Paul's opponents jeopardize this victory? Richard and I continue our discussion of Galatians with a review of chapter 2. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 95 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. When I was working on the book, I desperately wanted to include commentary around verse 1 of chapter 2 that dealt with the 14 years. But when you're writing, there are certain things that you have to let go of. And this was one of them, because the amount of time it would have taken to delve into the 14 years would have been pretty significant. But beyond that, there was risk that it wasn't germane to what I was writing about relative to Galatians. That's often the problem, is that something that sounds really cool may actually not be relevant. Not that it's not relevant, but not relevant for what you're doing. Galatians is a short letter, but it's a very intense, complex, densely packed letter. And there's lots to talk about. So this is something I skipped over in the book, but I thought might be worth mentioning on our podcast. Paul wrote 14 epistles. So it feels to me like this is a breadcrumb, a hint that this may be a reference to the body of work that Paul produced outside of Jerusalem. And now he's coming to Jerusalem with these 14 scrolls in hand. It's a very interesting idea. The reason it would have been difficult to deal with in the book, because it opens a whole discussion about metaphor and historical record versus narrative record, and whether the epistles were circular narrative texts or actual letters written to individual churches. That's a lengthy discussion that I wasn't really interested in dealing with in the book. But I can share it here because this is Bible study. We're talking. Knowing how to deal with detail in scripture is important. How you deal with it, how you sort through it, because there's a lot of detail. In this case, Paul could have said, then after an interval, I went up again to Jerusalem. But instead he says, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So one could ask the question, why does he add 14 years there when he doesn't need to? And someone could say, well, he needed to put a certain amount of time because it was a certain amount of time. But why does he feel the need to say that it was 14 years? Is he trying to say it was long? Is he trying to say it was short? Is there something about 14 itself? And in making the connection that you're making, Father, we're making the assumption that 14 years is important as 14. 
14 is a significant number because you could have said after a long time, after a certain time, after a short time, after more than 10 years, after fewer than 20 years. You could have said a lot of things, but instead he said 14. So why 14? And this has to do with how one reads literature. What do you do with the details? Are the details important or are they not important? If we make the assumption that all details are important in literature, then we start to make these kinds of connections like you're doing, Father. Once we understand that this is a system of metaphor, interlocking metaphors, even if you take it literally, I think there's a case to be made that there was work being done during that period, which implies a couple of things. One the work that he's done in taking the Torah to the nations, but now the Torah having been taken to the nations is coming once again in full judgment against Jerusalem. There's also mention here of Barnabas, his partner, and Titus, who we know from other letters is a key figure in terms of Paul's legacy. It was because of a revelation that I went up. Once again, a reminder that his commission is from God and he's being sent to Jerusalem the gospel did not come from Jerusalem. In Galatians, the gospel came from Syria to Palestine. This is a really important fact. And I think we allow ourselves to ignore this fact because in terms of the way human history works and human institution works, it just makes so much more sense to people to talk about Palestine as being the birthplace of Christianity. But the scroll in Paul's hand is the birthplace, not of Christianity, but of the teaching of Jesus Christ to non-Jews. Whenever we do the Bible in English, there's always compromises that have to be made. And here I'm going to nitpick as picky a nit as you can pick. It was because of a revelation that I went up semicolon and I submitted to them the gospel. I would remove the semicolon there. I would say that it's the revelation that was the reason why he went up. But it's also the revelation that is the reason that he submitted to them the gospel that he preaches among the Gentiles. This revelation means something that was not known that is now known. The term is apocalypsis. People talk about the apocalypse, and the way we use it in English can be misleading because we associate it with nuclear war and alien invasions or Old Testament famine or whatever. All the word means is to uncover. So something was uncovered for Paul, meaning that it was there and he just didn't see it. It's a fact that's revealed. It's very simple. If my son doesn't understand what A plus B squared means, and I explain it to him, it's an apocalypsis. Mm -hmm. But it can be explained. And the way I hear this, it's another way of saying, look, the meaning of the Old Testament was uncovered for me. I now understand what the Torah is saying. And now I'm going to bring what the Torah is saying, not only to the Gentiles, but to the church in Jerusalem. It's a very powerful statement. And it's interesting, the interplay here, because it was a revelation by which he submitted the gospel, but then he did it in private. Well, it's a courtesy. Is he saving face for the pillars? And this is very difficult for us to understand sometimes because we do think about saving face, but we don't think about how to save face for others anymore. Our understanding of privacy has more to do with mitigating our anxieties about what could happen to us and not about preserving the honor of somebody out of love and respect. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, I'm going to go and make my case privately to Peter and James and the pillars because I've worked too hard for the gospel to risk them rejecting it. 
So the best way to do it is to preserve their honor because if they disagree, I don't want to have an open conflict with them. Let me give them a chance to disagree. It's good for them and it's good for the cause because I don't want to be the guy that did all this work for no purpose because then I have to answer to Jesus Christ, why did you blow it by being disrespectful to Peter and James and now the gospel I asked you to preach has been undermined. All the work that I asked you to do has been undermined. Paul is being very correct here politically, and he's being very strategic in terms of safeguarding the cause of the gospel. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he's saying, look, even the pillars were on my page. The pillars were willing to deal with me and to deal with Titus knowing that he was not circumcised and no one forced him to be circumcised. They accepted him fully. And this is the legal case. I went to the top guys in the institution and they accepted it. So what comes after is a going back on one's word. In Acts, you have this lengthy court transcript where James and Peter convict themselves by endorsing Paul and then subsequently they go back on their endorsement through their actions. It's a big problem. But it was because of false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. And what he means here is that we were set free from the things that pertain to death, the things that pass away, in order to commit ourselves to the things that pertain to the heavenly city which does not pass away. And the things that pertain to the heavenly city, which is free, the Jerusalem above, those things pertain to the teaching that demands of us the love of neighbor, the law of Christ, the love of neighbor. Torah is always related to the revelation at Sinai, which always comes after slavery to earthly powers, slavery to the power of death. So if he has a revelation about Torah, presents it as gospel, that's the opposite of slavery. It's a freedom. Now, it's freedom through submission to Torah, but it's submission to that which is eternal, God, as opposed to submission to that which is temporal, fleshly, that's Pharaoh. And so when the pillars want to put the people under bondage, it goes against this revelation that Paul is bringing to them as the gospel. Well, here's the difficult part of what's going on. The pillars, by bringing Paul's children and trying to bring Paul himself back into bondage, are taking the place of Pharaoh functionally, or Caesar. In other words, the bondage Paul is referring to is the tyranny of human strength, of human achievement, of human ascesis, of human authority. And it's a serious problem. And of course... When he refers to the false brethren secretly brought in, he's referring to the incident in Antioch where Jews and Gentiles were sitting together to have a meal, the Eucharistic meal, table fellowship, and to talk about the meaning of the teaching of the gospel. And people were spying, sent from Jerusalem to see whether or not Paul was, for lack of a better expression, keeping kosher. And he wasn't. And then there was an incident that Paul talks about in Galatians where Peter who accepted that it was okay for Jews and Gentiles to sit together, one keeping the rules about clean and unclean foods, the other eating whatever they like, but all sitting together around the gospel. 
Peter accepted that, but then in order to save face, even though he himself didn't keep the rules about what to eat and what not to eat, pulled back from the table. That's the hypocrisy that Paul will attack later. So bondage has this symbolic meaning that pertains to the kingly function of Pharaoh or Caesar, but it has a very practical implication that Peter wants to control what other people are eating. In other words, the sin in religion is confusing God's micromanagement of you with a right that you want to claim to micromanage other people. You have no right. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And I love this verse because this has a lot to do with the stand a preacher has to take when he is trying to convey the gospel message to the people. Because you're always in a position of saying something that's counterintuitive, and everyone wants to convince you that you should compromise. You have no right to compromise. You have to be stubborn. Now here Paul is talking about being stubborn in terms of not giving an inch with respect to circumcision or with respect to sitting with people who are unclean or who eat unclean foods. But really, it's a lack of compromise relative to the gospel itself. I think also he's speaking here about the authority of the pillars because he came and he says, hey, by the way, pillars, here is the gospel. And they either agree to it or disagree with it. They endorse it or don't endorse it. But once they do endorse it, Paul doesn't say, see, it's correct. The pillars endorsed it. No, he came in and knew that it was correct from the very beginning and was hoping for their endorsement so they could work together. Here he's saying, once they endorsed it, I didn't then submit myself to them. I remained underneath the gospel exclusively. God is my judge. God is my king. God is my reference. Again, we always refer to this beautiful scene between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, but that's what's going on here. Paul is saying to the pillars, as Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you're not my reference. I don't answer to you. And that comes through clearly in verse 6, but from those who are of high reputation. And then he says, what they were makes no difference to me. And he quotes Deuteronomy, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality in executing his judgments, period. Rich or poor, sick or healthy, Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter to God. As he sees, he judges, and his judgment is true. People say God sees everything and understands everything, and he knows what's in your heart. I mean, this is philosophy. God is a blind judge. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. You have a Torah. I read the Torah, and I look at how you act, and that's it. We're done. There's no case to plead. You already had your second chance when you were baptized. When you face me in the final day, which is strike three, I'm going to look at the text and look at you and you're either in or out. And what's ominous about that is that everybody is out. That's the thing. But there's a clause, as it were, that since all of these regulations of the law were to put you to shame so that you would be in the frame of mind of someone defeated who then doesn't have hubris standing in between them and their neighbor... If you just accept that you've been put to shame and from a position of shame, reach out to others to do the work of the gospel, which is love and respect and care and fellowship, I might let you off the hook. Might. The Torah has to be the only judge and the only reference point, because here's the thing. 
If you read Torah and you judge whether you're doing the right thing or not, you'll say, no, I'm not doing the right thing. But if you say, but I'm not as bad as Hitler, then Hitler is your reference point. Right. Hitler is not allowed to be your reference point. <laughs> you have to use Torah exclusively. And with this, when Paul is speaking about the pillars, it's so easy to talk like this because we can say, okay, at our church, our goal is to preach Torah, is to preach the gospel. And this is what we do. And lo and behold, we grew tenfold over the last five years. We must be teaching Torah correctly because we're growing in numbers. No, 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 no. The numbers of the people who are coming in are not your reference point. They can't be your reference point. The success of the parish can't be the success, can't be the reference point. It's only, are you preaching according to the revelation that you received or are you not? And that's the only thing. Now, if your church does grow, then you say, thank God, now we have more people who can be on the same page and can keep teaching. And that's why Paul is excited about getting the pillars. Not because now they show that he's correct. No, his reference point is still Torah. But he's saying, it's good to get more people to help so we don't run in vain, so we're not wasting our time. Well, and they have the power to really make life difficult for Paul. Yeah, and, and so then he has to spend a lot of his energy in vain. He wants to be able to focus on what's most important. But he's insisting in the mind of the hearers in Galatia, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. My God doesn't care about their reputation or their status, and neither do I, and I want nothing from them. Paul was a tent maker. This has a double function. Number one, he sets up the tent of meeting. In other words, he establishes the congregation where the scroll is opened and read in the wilderness. But he also supported himself financially so that no one but God could have their hooks in him. And we know from this epistle that God did have a thorn in his flesh. So it's not that Paul was an individual the way that we think about being independent in Western society. Paul was not an individual. He was a slave in God's household. But the key is that he was a slave in God's household. In the story of Paul, you have the story of Exodus playing out. Do you belong to Pharaoh or do you belong to the God of Moses? Which one is it? It's the most important question in Scripture. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked through Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. He's acknowledging that Peter has a job to do to preach to the Jews and that Paul has the difficult job of fulfilling the Old Testament by bringing the Torah to the nations and recognizing the grace that had been given to me. James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, and our friend David Pates at church, who was one of my editors on the book, pointed out to me that this term pillars could be a metaphoric reference to the pillars of the temple, mm. which ultimately scripture is anti-temple, anti-statue. So I thought that was really powerful that these guys are holding up a building and Paul is trying to carry the tent of meeting out into the wilderness. It's a very nice observation by David. So those who were reputed to be pillars gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. And here Paul is once again emphasizing that they met in private, they shook hands, gave each other the kiss of peace, and they said, Peter, you go to the Jews, Paul, you go to the Gentiles, we're all good. We accept that these are different communities and they should be allowed to be without one imposing their identity on the other. 
because it takes all kinds of people to make the human race. It's a very important argument. They only asked us to remember the poor is a clever statement on the part of Paul because it's in fulfillment of the Old Testament, obviously taking care of the poor. But the poor are those who have not received the teaching. So Paul could be here on the one hand saying that he was eager to take care of the Gentiles and eager to take care of people who were actually poor. And those two missions are linked. But the irony is that who's really poor in this situation? The pillars will show themselves to be the ones who are poor. Within the story of the Bible, they walk the earth with Jesus Christ, but yet they're the ones who still are blind to the meaning of Jesus' teaching. And Paul is the one who's bringing the lamp of the gospel to the nations. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And this is what we mentioned earlier about the table fellowship. So Peter, who understood that the Gentiles should be allowed to eat bacon, and who agreed that the Gentiles should be allowed to eat bacon, and who said that he would go preach to people who couldn't eat bacon, and you can preach to the people who can eat bacon, and if we get together, we can mix our food up and it'll be fine. I mean, one thing to understand also, and anyone who's been to the Middle East has seen this, you don't necessarily have a serving dish in front of you and then a plate in front of you, then you dish from that plate onto your own. Understand, you know, I lived in Morocco every single day. There was one plate for nine people, and we all ate out of it. You can't keep one set of dietary rules and another set of dietary rules when you have one giant plate for everybody. Yeah, we, we call that communion. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Peter used to sit down while they had bacon. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the point here is that Peter is no longer putting himself under God as his judge. That's the key. He's putting himself under the judgment of men. And that's why Paul has to turn his back on him. That's why Paul has to cut him off. Because you were entrusted with the preaching of God's teaching to the Jews, but yet you're afraid of the authority of the Jews? What's wrong with you? How can you teach people if you're trying to please them worse than that? How can you teach anyone anything if you fear men and you don't fear God? In the ancient world, we do have a record of this from around 200 AD, that among Jews in general, there was always a fear of mixing other gods and other deities in with our own worship. They wanted to be pure of idolatry. So we find lots of rules around wine, for example. If you have a jar of wine, how long can you have that jar of wine in the hands of a Gentile before it comes back to you? Why is this a concern? Because that Gentile might offer a little bit of that wine to Bacchus and dedicate that wine to Bacchus. And then if you drink that wine that's dedicated to Bacchus, this is a small apostasy because you're acknowledging another God. So one of the things that the Jewish community was trying to be very careful about was these different gods and making sure you followed your God and not the other God. And I think here what Paul is trying to emphasize is that when you believe in the one God, the other gods and their rules and this kind of purity are less important. I mean, today we have all these rules. Does God allow us to watch these kinds of movies? Does God allow us to read these kinds of books or listen to this kind of music? How can you be godly and listen to this music? 
He's undermining this, saying that our main concern is to take care of the poor and bring the Torah to the Gentiles, not worry about whether we're remaining pure or not. And this is the concern. Peter is worried about remaining pure when the point is to bring Torah to those who are certainly impure. And in giving into that insecurity, Peter is giving himself over to false gods and ultimately making himself a god. Because when you play that game, you end up being in a position of power, as I said earlier, and you persecute people. How many times do we have to see a religious leader, a pastor, a rabbi, or whatever, who persecutes his people with religious identity and religious regulations? And the basis of it is always how we remain pure. This is the crux. It's the control mechanism. The crux is, do we need to stay pure? Or do we need to help the poor? Are you Orthodox? Are you a good Catholic? Are you a faithful Baptist? This whole language of identity and sectarianism is anti-biblical. Because if you're so concerned about maintaining the integrity of your community, you are setting yourself up against God's other children. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So Paul's colleagues are even betraying him All around him, Paul is being left alone and isolated because of his stance that he fears only God. But when I saw that they were not straightforward, orthopodeo, meaning that they walked in a straight line, that they weren't walking according to God's commandments, obviously that they're not being honest with Paul, but when you're not honest, you're in violation of God's instructions. So it's a very clever wordplay here. So they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So never mind that you are imposing something on the backs of others, but you're imposing something that you aren't doing. And here people have to understand that the hypocrisy of Peter is not personal. Because no one can do what the law requires. Paul isn't saying that you're not an upstanding example, because there are no examples, including Paul. This is a very serious matter. Peter's insistence on remaining pure. Making himself a reference. Even if he thinks he is following Torah and keeping himself pure, it betrays the truth of the gospel, which is that it's not about you and your purity because the Torah and gospel teach us that we can't be pure and we can't be correct. And so why would you strive to be pure under a reference that says you cannot be pure? Instead, what you need to do is take care of the poor. And that's what he's forgetting. Peter is leaving the care of the poor in order to concern himself with his own purity. In other words... Peter, we know that you don't do it because nobody does it. So what's the deal here? This is the sin. It's a deeper problem. There's the natural hypocrisy that we all are party to. And then there's the uber hypocrisy of religion in which you create a system of purity and a system of identity. And then you follow them and you pretend you're better than everyone else. This is why Paul is angry at Peter. And he's angry because this pretense, this false pretense of purity, has led him to separate himself from the very people that he is called to evangelize and to hold fellowship with 
for the sake of the cause of God's wisdom. We, Paul says, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Meaning, you were born a Jew. You received the Torah, not because there's something good about you or special about you, but because you happen to be part of this group. And it was an advantage to you. Okay, I know you have this advantage, and he expands on this in Romans. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, and here the Greek is the same word as the term we translate righteousness in the New Testament, dikaios, meaning if a man is not declared or shown to be correct by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, because only Christ can declare by fiat that you are correct, even if you're not correct. All of these concepts we invent to convince ourselves that we're different than the people we're persecuting in the third world. This kills them because Paul is saying you are no different. God shows no partiality. You can follow all your rules and use clean language and dress nicely and have beautiful ceremonies and not engage in immorality and you're still no better than anyone else. Your only hope is if the one who sits on the seat of judgment, who is my reference, assigns hope to you by fiat. This is the sledgehammer. And it's not just Christ in the position that he occupies, but also Christ the story. The one who was set up as the Son of God is the one who is persecuted and the one who is rejected by everyone. You have to keep your faith, not that if you do these things, everything will work out for you, but the opposite. If you do all these things, you're going to look less than and poorer than the others. So why? It's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. So then why do you consider yourself above Jesus? That's ultimately what Paul is asking. Jesus did not seek his own purity. Absolutely. Jesus, if he was going to remain pure, could not have come among human beings. The correct thing is... Are you taking care of the poor, not are you keeping yourself pure? It's the wrong question. Even we have believed, and here you must read, placed our trust in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified, read, numbered among the righteous, or declared righteous by faith, read, our trust in Christ, and not by the works of the law, read, by the work of our own hands, which is to fashion statues of bronze and gold for worship. In other words, Paul is linking here ingeniously religious ascesis to idolatry. He's showing you that Peter is a harlot on the basis of his action towards Paul's teaching. And now he's showing you on the basis of Peter's understanding of ritual purity that Peter is offering sacrifice to false gods ultimately making himself a god. Since, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, which is a fancy way of saying, we know that men are not God, so therefore men cannot make righteous what God, through his instruction, has shown to be unrighteous. Adikeos. And again, this really is expanded in Romans, where this is the main issue at stake you know, in Paul's treaties. And if we can also understand that when he says law, you know, we understand this, when he says law, often this is a translation of Torah or the teaching. And I think that many times people from every religion understand Torah as a system of rules. 
But in fact, that's not how Torah functions. Torah is describing the state of affairs. What it's saying is, this is what human beings are. You fell into this. You can tell by your works that you are no good, no better than the other human beings ever since Adam. You're always trying to move into the realm of God to control things. This is what Torah is teaching. And again, Peter is falling afoul of this. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves, parenthetically, Peter, have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. And this is a double hit. Because on the one hand, the fact that you're no better than the sinner doesn't mean you can harlot the gospel to justify your sins, which is really the message to the Gentiles. But on the other hand, he's saying to Peter, are you using the name of Jesus Christ? Are you using the Torah as makeup for your own hypocrisy? Are you using Jesus Christ as a cover so that you can look pure and lord your authority over the Gentiles? May that never be so. Just as we don't want the church in Roman Corinth to walk around saying, everything is lawful, woohoo. We don't want you to say, look at how holy I am with your cross around your neck, Peter. Come on. Are we talking about Peter or Jesus? If you look at how young people today and millennials have been taught, it's all about finding your identity. Who are you? And Peter is stuck trying to figure out who is he. The question is not, who are you? The question is, are you remembering the poor? What are you doing? It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter where you come from. Your identity is immaterial. You aren't who you are. You are what you do. And in Scripture, our goal is always to be a manifestation of God's commandment. When Jews shout this expression, mitzvah, when they see a righteous act, they're exclaiming, this person is manifesting the presence of God in his instruction, his commandment. So all Peter has to do is do what he's told and he'll be fine. Instead, he wants to figure out who he is. He's having the classic silly existential crisis, which is silly because we're all going to be six feet under eventually. So what is your crisis about? And that's the beauty of Ecclesiastes, right? It gives you that context. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed... I prove myself to be a transgressor. And this language of destruction is the language of the destruction of the temple in the Old Testament, the destruction of Jerusalem. You are the pillars of the temple and you're trying to hold up the temple and God is destroying it. And this is evident in the metaphor of the temple of the body of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Why are you trying to build up this edifice of purity that you can hide behind? when God destroyed it so that you could be set free and put yourself under the aegis of the Jerusalem above, which has no edifice. It's all about liberty, but liberty through slavery to the instruction. And just as the Gospels will make very clear, the discussion about Jesus' destruction takes much more time and much more effort and much more focus than the resurrection of Jesus. We don't want to have the image of resurrected Jesus supplant our image of Christ crucified. Because once we believe that Jesus came to be pure, that Jesus came so that we might remain pure, then we go off the track. We need to remember the broken Jesus so that we can remain broken for the sake of the poor. Peter wants Jesus in verse 18 to come down from the cross. 
God destroyed his own son, his own Messiah. And Peter is trying to preserve and sustain and build. That's why he was ashamed of Jesus' punishment Absolute, in the Gospels. Absolutely. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live unto God. In other words, the law was given to put me to shame so that I might realize that I'm no better than anyone else. And in that position of weakness, I might recognize my dependence on God as my judge and my king and my only reference, and that he, through his instruction, might save me. It's so basic, but so impossible, because human beings are stubborn. They want to believe in their identity. They want to believe in their ideology. They want to believe in their theology. But all God is asking you to do is to stop believing in yourself. Scripture isn't asking you to believe anything mentally. It's asking you to stop trusting in yourself and to trust in the instruction. You don't even have to understand it. Just do it. Again, this bugs people. Because if you're just taking orders, you're nothing more than a child. Well, right. You're not a reference. You are a child. That's why children enter the kingdom. I have been crucified with Christ. And this is what I'm saying. It's the language of crucifixion, being put to death. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, meaning that my ego is no longer functional. I do whatever I'm told to do by the one who sent me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, meaning by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, meaning that Paul's whole life is mitzvah. I mean, this is a bold statement. My whole life is about the commandment. I don't have a say in what I do anymore. I am a slave. And he always introduces himself as the thulos, right? The slave of God's teaching. I do not nullify the grace of God, which is what he's saying Peter is doing. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Christ died to no avail. In other words, he's accusing Peter of stripping the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of its value. Peter's nullifying the crucifixion because he's trying to build himself up. The ultimate betrayal of the one who was martyred is to go against what they gave themselves for. If righteousness came through the law, if the law was about making you righteous, then Christ died needlessly because he obviously was a loser. He obviously was cursed. If the law is about making sure that you're righteous, Jesus lost. But if the law is to teach us that we are all condemned, and it's only what are we willing to sacrifice ourselves for, whom are we willing to serve, then Christ's death was meaningful. So, if it's about keeping yourself pure, Jesus failed. Because he died, and death is the ultimate impurity. And he died on a cross, which makes it even worse. And it was after he was clearly condemned by 100% of the vote, unanimously. Everyone understood that he was condemned. But Torah already said he was condemned. He was living up to what Torah had already said. He put his trust in Torah that even though Torah tells us of our condemnation, our lack of righteousness. Putting trust in Torah as God's word puts your trust that only God can make you righteous by his word. And because he trusted God's word, this is the key, because he obeyed to the last iota of the scroll, 
God had no choice but to raise him. His death was his victory. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.